0: Well, once again, Happy New Year, and uh, I wanna give a, a welcome and a Happy New Year to our brothers and sisters over at our Cedar Lake campus. And uh, it's a delight to begin a new year of ministry together, to open God's word, and to uh, anticipate what he is going to do, continue to do in our presence. We started a, a new teaching series uh, early in December from uh, the book of 1 John. And since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 1 John, I thought it'd be good if we just sort of got back in our minds and in our hearts what we've seen so far. So very quickly, let's just uh, review, and as many of you know, what we call a book, 1 John, really was a letter. It was a letter from the Apostle John to uh, what's known as the Johannine community, to this group of people, really a church that he pastored and it was a church that was hurting it was a church that uh, often probably had to sing it as well with my soul because they had to be reminded that God was in control because they'd been through a split and there had what had happened was that there had arisen within the church a group of uh, we call them false teachers. Of course, they didn't go around saying, hi, I'm a false teacher. False teachers never say that. Uh, they seem quite normal and uh, the proverbial uh, wolf in sheep, sheep's clothing. Uh, but they were teaching uh, things that were contrary to what the Apostle John was saying. And what they said had a very strong appeal to people and they gathered followers and ended up leaving. And so John writes this letter to the church basically to reemphasize what he had been teaching, to counter what these false teachers had been saying, and to remind them of uh, true and authentic Christianity. And what we're going to see, what we've seen a little bit already, what we're going to see is basically he is identifying evidences of genuine salvation. How can I know if I am a Christian or not? How can I know if somebody is a Christian or not? And John's gonna say that it has very little to do with what they say you know, if they just talk the talk, it doesn't matter so much. They have to walk the walk. And he's going to lay out some of these evidences. Well, what these false teachers had been saying were things like this. Hey, listen, you can be a Christian and be in fellowship with God and you can live any way that you want to. Now, this is, of course, an abuse of grace and John counters that by saying God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God but walk in darkness, God's not the liar, we're the liar. And so he counters it with that comment. They also were saying things like this. Listen, I'm here to tell you I have reached a position, a place where I am spiritually perfect. And they made claims to be without sin. And John says, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. And so here you have the Apostle John. If anybody in that church was probably the you know the spiritual one, it would have been the Apostle John. And he's saying, if anyone claims to be without sin, even me, the Apostle John, they're deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. So, uh, the first chapter is John dealing with or addressing how Christians relate to God and how Christians view sin. And he says, listen, we don't celebrate sin. We don't deny the presence of sin. Rather, verse 9, we confess sin. And if we confess, God is faithful to his promises and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there, then, is the biblical Christian approach to sin where we are ongoingly confessing our failures to God and where he is ongoingly forgiving us and washing us clean, which allows us to remain in the light and in fellowship with the God who is pure spiritual, moral, and holy. Now, John has great pastoral instincts. And in spite of what he has said here, he knows that many people would read uh, verse 9 and the promise there that if we confess our sins, that God will forgive us our sins. And in spite of everything else he's going to say, they're going to look at that and say, aha, this is the greatest news ever. Because this means that I can do what I want and merely confess my sin on the other side, walk away clean, all is well. I get the pleasure of the sin and I get the clear conscience with God. Christianity is a great thing. And so John, knowing that people are going to think that, wants to make it very clear that he is not saying in any way that Christians ought to Sanction sin, presume upon the grace of God. It reminds me of a guy I was talking to on the phone years ago, and he he was struggling with a decision. He was, and I I, actually I don't remember exactly the sin. I think he was intentionally going to sleep with somebody other than his wife, and he thought this is what he said to me on the phone. He said, "I'm going to do it. I know it's wrong, but then I'm just going to ask God to forgive me on the other side." and everything's good right and i remember i said something to him like i don't even think you're a christian i mean if you if that's what you're planning on planning to sin and presuming on the grace of god do you get the gospel now you may say well that's kind of harsh well this is what john says to us now and i want to read the the, the passage here actually i had another illustration let me get to this and then let me share this one because it's actually one of my favorite movies because i got to this point i got thinking about uh the the movie groundhog day where if you know the movie most people probably know the movie where the bill murray plays the character in which uh it's groundhog day he wakes up he lives the day he wakes up the next morning and he's back in the day before he's reliving the day And it freaks him out. And sure enough, the next morning he wakes up, he's reliving the day again. And he relives the day over and over. No matter what happens during the day, he wakes up, it's a fresh start. It's the same day. It's as if the previous day never happened. Well, then it dawns on him that this is like the greatest thing ever. Because it means that he can live in whatever way he wants to, do whatever he wants to, and wake up the next morning all is well again. And so in the movie, it, this, this mor- morality dawns on him, and he uh, begins to realize, I can eat whatever I want. And there he is at the table, there's donuts everywhere, and he's eating all this stuff, gorging himself. And uh, he robs a car, he seduces a woman, he commits suicide in all kinds of creative ways, only to wake up again the next morning, which ultimately leads to uh, despair, which is actually true. Sin does that. Uh, but that's kind of the way many people, I think, view the grace of God, is that it's, it's like Groundhog Day. I can wake up the next day, pray my little prayer, be on my way, everything's fine. And John wants to make it clear that he in no way is sanctioning a presuming upon the grace of God. And so that is why he now pushes back on this, beginning in chapter 2, and our text today is, is verses 1 and 2, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless his word to us tonight and help us understand what the Holy Spirit intended. Now, John begins by saying this, my little children. Boy, that's condescending, isn't it? I mean, if I got up here and said, oh, my little children, half of you would get up and walk out going, who does he think he is, right? Is he saying this in a condescending way? Not at all. Here you have the aged, seasoned, godly, Apostle John, who himself was there at the cross, saw the resurrected Christ, Now, writing a letter to people he loved. And this is a very, it's a term of endearment and affection. I have been on the receiving end of this kind of thing. Dr. Wilbur Williams, some of you may know him. Uh, He is one of the godliest men I know. He's in his 80s. I have been on a couple of tours with him to Israel. He's a wonderful tour guide there. And just, I look up to him so much. He calls me his son. Now, what do you think I think about that? I think he's so condescending in saying that. No, I love it, right? Why? Because he's saying, I have feelings for you. This is, this is how I feel towards you. And John is saying essentially the same thing. And by the way, through the ages, is saying that uh, to us tonight. To realize that the apostles and, and uh, the prophets and, and of course Jesus himself loves the people of his church. If if John was here tonight, our guest speaker tonight at Bethel Church, we have the Apostle John. He might get up here, age, you know, we bring him back from the dead, but he comes back old, and he comes up, he's, oh, my dear children. And we'd all be like, oh, we love it, right? And I'm sure the people, when they saw John referring to them this way, they loved it as well. A very pastoral, tender kind of relationship that he had with his people, and we need to admire that. And we certainly do. Notice what he says: "I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin." The goal of what I'm saying is not that you sin, but that you may not sin. He says, "The end game of understanding God and His holiness, and the gospel, and Jesus, and what He did, and the cross, and the resurrection, and..." All that God intends in making us into the likeness of Christ is not that any one of us would somehow think to ourselves, I can live any way that I want to now. I'm under the grace of God. I'm going to go and sin. He says, no, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. Other passages say the same. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Titus 2, notice what it says about what the grace of God does. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what does the grace of God do for us? What does the gospel do? How do I know if somebody gets the gospel or if I'm getting the gospel? I know it because in my heart, I don't want to sin. If I leave church and I go, I can't wait to sin again. You're, you're not getting it here. The goal is not to sin. How can it be? This is what brought Jesus to the cross. This is, this is what brought enmity between us and God. This is what God hates how can I want to sin if I'm his child? How can I want to displease him? The goal is to not sin. And if I stopped right here, be warmed and filled, blessings upon you, go off and, uh, and, and, and go on with your day, we would all leave discouraged, wouldn't we? What was the point of the message tonight? Don't sin. We walk out of here, what are we all thinking to ourselves? Not because I want to, but I know myself, right? And I know that I'm not sure I'm going to get out of the parking lot without having some carnal thought about the person who cuts me off in the church parking lot. And this is the, this is the tension always with The the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the reality of indwelling sin, even for the Christian who still has the sin nature, How how do we live in the tension of that? How do we live in the balance of that? And John beautifully brings the balance here. He says, the goal is not to sin. Don't sin. Don't presume upon the grace of God. But when you do sin, notice verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And I pondered how to approach this passage, and there's a number of ways to do it. I just have decided to do it Christ-centered and to identify three functions, three roles that Jesus plays in assisting in an ongoing way. The sinner, the Christian struggle with sin. And the first one is a beautiful one. What is he called here? He is called our, one, two, three, advocate, yes. He is called our advocate. And this Greek word here is one that is kind of well known, so I'm going to throw it out there because then you go, oh, I know that one. It is that Greek word para, cleat. Para means alongside, it means to come and to encourage or to comfort. You may have heard that uh, the Holy Spirit, for example, is called our paraclete, the comforter, John 14. And we love the fact that the Holy Spirit is having that kind of encouraging, comforting role. And we often pray in the midst of trouble and sorrow or trial. You know, Holy Spirit, grant, give to me comfort. Help me. Encourage me. I need, I need help here. And here, Jesus is called our advocate, our paraclete. And I think a helpful way to think about this is to recognize that the Holy Spirit is our advocate within us, and Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And so if you think about this spatially, the Holy Spirit is within us doing his advocacy role. He is interceding for us. He is comforting us. He is helping us. But there is also one who is in heaven, With the Father, the text says. Indeed, the Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And that one of the things that Christ is doing ongoingly on behalf of his people is he is our advocate with the Father. He is our paraclete with God Almighty. Now that leads to the question, okay, well that's great to hear, but what is he doing there exactly and how is that a help? How is Christ advocating for us? Well, he advocates with God the Father. He intercedes for us. He entreats the Father on our behalf. And I'm going to explain a little more later what that means. But we ask the question rightly because it's the next thing that John brings up, is what gives Jesus the right to do that? What gives him the right to advocate for us? And it's the next thing that John points out about Christ he says when if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous or jesus christ the righteous one so the second thing that we find about christ here is that he is he has earned the right to be there by virtue of his own righteous life and of course we talk about the The life of Christ often and what his life was like, the texture, the contour, the morality of his life. And here John says it was perfect. He was the righteous one. Now I think that he is pointing this out partially because it's coming on the heels of verse 8 and verse 10 where he says if anyone claims to be without sin, uh, he he, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. He says, there isn't any of us that is without sin. But oh, wait a second, there is one. And his name is Jesus. And I think it's notable who is identifying him as the righteous one. This is not an observer from afar. This is John. This is a guy that lived up close with Jesus, maybe up to three years. We're not exactly sure when Jesus called his disciples, but maybe up to three years he lived with Jesus. Now, we can fake people from a, uh, from a distance, can't we? If we don't see, we're not around people that much, we could actually, oh, that person's pretty, that's a pretty, he's a good guy. We say that about people, right? Normally it's somebody we don't know very well. Have you noticed that? He's a, he's a, he's a good guy. Because what happens when we get up close with people and we live with them or go on vacation with them or we see them in the day-to-day of life What becomes readily apparent? That every single person that I have ever known is a sinner. And those attitudes come out, don't they? We can hide it from people from a distance, maybe for a day, maybe not a day, maybe an hour, or a minute, some of us. But when we see them up close, we see the flaws and we see the contradictions and we see the imperfections that all of us have. John lives with Jesus. He walks down the road with Jesus. He eats, they wake up around the fire, the disciples. He sees his attitude, he sees every action, he sees the contour and the shape of his life. He stands there as Jesus is crucified. The text tells us that Jesus stood at the foot of the cross. You want to talk about a time where if you have a, a bad attitude that might come out, how about crucifixion? And yet John says, I knew the man, I knew everything about him, and I'm here to tell you, not one time did I ever see anything except absolute righteousness. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we know from the testimony of the Bible, which talks about this in in greater depth, uh, the other Gospels and the other writers and Paul and Romans 3, that this life that Jesus lived, this perfection, was not just because he wanted to. It came out of his character as the Son of God. And it was necessary to qualify him to die in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's part of his It's part of his work as Savior. John says, I never saw anything except complete righteousness to the law and the will of God. Every moment, he was the righteous one. Now let's see the third description, because this is all now going to be kind of tied together uh, as John explains this advocacy of Jesus and how what he does at the right hand of the Father... And the perfection of his life was necessary for him to be now the propitiation of God's wrath. Notice what it says in verse 2 He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, the propitiation of God's wrath. And I would love this weekend to be a weekend where in our church, for everybody that's here, we all get this word like down in our vocabulary and down in our vernacular, where we all get and understand and relish what it means that Jesus is our propitiation. Now I think it needs to begin by being able to say it properly. So why don't we practice saying the word propitiation? Can we do that together? On the count of three. One, two, three. I think you've got to say it more than once. How about, uh, well, let's all say it here. Okay, one, two, three. Propitiation. All right, propitiation. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Propitiation. Sounds nice, what's it mean? Well, uh, what it means is one reason that we actually use the version of the Bible that we do. As a little tangent here, I preach out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. There are many translations of the Bible, and there are several that are really, really, really good. But a few years ago, we switched to the ESV, and one of the reasons that we did that was that other translations, when it comes to words like this, I'm going to call propitiation a big, hairy theological word. Okay? It's, a big, it's a big word, right? And it can sometimes seem a little imposing. And so, often translators will come to words like this and rather than writing that that, putting that word in they will explain the word okay so for example the niv which i preached out of for many years here and i really like the niv so i'm not down on the niv but it it says um, it translates this the atoning sacrifice okay the atoning sacrifice or the new living translation the sacrifice that atones Why do they do that? Because propitiation is a big, hairy theological word. And people today, the modern man, that can't handle these big words. And so we're going to explain them rather than put the word in there. And I, and I would say our leadership, our desire is that we're a church of big, theological, hairy words. What's it take to get an amen around here, huh? (laughs) We want to be a church that doesn't have to dumb it down or to slightly uh you know uh, alter it a little bit let's just use the word and allow god's people to grow in their understanding and then their appreciation for what that word means and why the holy spirit put it in there in the first place so that's the goal and now I'm going to make a run at it by helping us all understand what propitiation means. And if you get what it means, you should be dancing as you leave tonight. Now, the word propitiation is actually a common word in the ancient world. And as many of you know from hopefully school or at least reading something along the way, that in the, the ancient religions of the world, they all had gods, right? They all had gods, different gods. Think of, the, for example, the Greek or the Roman pantheon where uh, you've got Zeus and Athena and uh, Poseidon and others who are you know, their gods with their certain characteristics. But all of them are very capricious. They're, they're, they're wishy-washy. You never know if they're in a good mood or a bad mood. You don't know if what you have done is enough to put them in a good mood or if what you've done has put them in a bad mood. You certainly don't have any idea of whether or not they like you or if you have their favor. And in that... Uh, In that culture of the ancient religions, out of that came this word propitiation. And it was a word that means this. It was an offering that turned the wrath of the God into favor. An offering that turned the wrath of the God, Zeus or whoever, into favor towards me. And so they very much wanted that and they would offer any kinds of things many of them immoral uh, but they were wanting to they felt the anger of the gods and they wanted for the gods to like them and normally this was to manipulate them so that their rain would call fall and the crops would be good and their livestock would reproduce and they would have children in their homes and etc etc so um, and of course we know that those gods were not real gods and but that was the way that they practiced their religion That word, propitiation, is used here in the same way, but for a very different God. Because the God of the Bible is not capricious. The God of the Bible is not wishy washy. The God of the Bible is absolutely unchanging. You don't have to wonder whether or not God is angry with sin. He has made it abundantly clear from the garden that he is angry at sin and that his holiness does not allow sin to go unpunished. Adam and Eve and every single one of us that has lived ever since has died. The wages of sin is death. That is a sign of God's wrath against sin. In the modern day, actually actually, propitiation, this is a controversial word. It is controversial because there are, and I would call more sort of liberal uh, ponds of Christianity. They don't want to think about a God that is angry at sin or angry at sinners. Or maybe they'll say, well, he's angry at the sin, but he loves the sinner." But if you'll notice, God doesn't send sin to hell. He puts sinners in hell. I would not want to split the wrath of God between the sin and the sinner. God is angry at sin. And will punish every sinner and every sin must be be punished. His holiness requires it. And so, uh, people will try to play with the translation of this verse and say that uh, actually what it's saying is not that God's anger needs to be changed, but what this word means is that the offense within the sinner is taken away. In other words, what's going on here is not something that's changing with God, it's something that's changing with me. The offense of my sin is taken away uh, or the the guilt of my sin is taken away uh, because God is love after all and we don't want to talk about a God who's angry because he's so much love, 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 love and he can't be love and angry at the same time and yet every person who's ever loved anything probably has had love and anger at the same time. Imagine a husband who loves his wife so much that he has a jealous kind of love for her. And a righteous indignation for any impropriety that may come along. There is love and anger go together, and in God they are perfectly balanced. In fact, balance is maybe not even the right word to say. It's not like He's got some love and some anger. He is He is one. God is one, fully integrated, but He is. He is both. He is love, but he is also a God of wrath. As Hebrews said, our God is a consuming fire, therefore worship him with reverence and awe, people. And that greatness and the majesty of God and a God who is wrathful against God, which means he is utterly opposed, not wrathful against God, wrathful against sin, he, is, he stands in absolute, utter, complete total opposition to anything that is in the words of John darkness he is light and his light hates the darkness and is angry and that is why this is such an important truth one commentator says if we are wrong here nothing else is right the love of God does not contradict the wrath of God. In fact, Paul, in Romans, his big treatise on the gospel, begins his entire thing, Romans 1.18, not with the love of God, but with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you have a view of God where he is angry at sin and angry at sinners? We need to. That is the God of the Bible. God's love begins with a commitment to his own glory. And it is so absolute, he cannot wink at sin. He cannot simply, in a vacuum, say, Oh, you're fine, don't worry about it. His justice will not allow it, and his commitment to his own glory will not either. So to understand propitiation, if if you don't have a view of the wrath of God, propitiation is going to be like, ah, it's just one of those big theological hairy words that the theologians talk about, but it doesn't really matter at all. But if tonight we can feel within our hearts a little glimpse of the wrath of God, if for a moment we could open a little window and see into the fires of hell, I think that there would be a wonderful treasuring of the doctrine of propitiation. Because the doctrine of propitiation says this, That there is a way for the holy wrath of God against sin to be turned from anger to favor. Not just to neutral, which alone would be great, but to favor and to love and to adoption and to co-heir with Christ. How does the wrath of God get changed towards me into eternal favor? Now that is a great mystery. But it is the glory and the wonder of the gospel. And it comes back to who Christ is. He is our advocate. He is the righteous one. But he is himself our propitiation. He is the offering that turns the wrath of God into favor towards the sinner. Let me let scripture explain this. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And what that means is that what God did, what, what about all the sins of the saints? What about Moses' sin? What about David's sin? What about, why didn't God immediately send them into, into hell and in punishment? He forbear, he waited to place upon Jesus the sins of every saint of the Old Testament. That's what that means. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is what it means, then. If you look at those verses and many others, what it means is that Jesus' death in our place was a substitution, but not simply a substitution where I Jesus died in our place. It was a wrath turner, it was a wrath satisfier to such a degree where now God the Father can look down upon the sinner, you tonight, friend, and not see you as a sinner, not see you for what you did when you were in college that to this day bugs you, not to see what you did this week against somebody that you say that you love. Not, he doesn't look at that. He doesn't see that. And the way that he doesn't see that is that Christ's death was, now here's another word, atonement, a covering for that sin, which allows now God the Father to look down upon the sinner who has trusted in Christ and who has been declared righteous. The merits of Jesus' perfect life have been applied to me And now he does not see me for the thing that I did and the other thing that I did and the thousand things that I did in 2012 that I shouldn't have done or that I should have done that I didn't. He doesn't see that. What he sees is he sees the righteousness of Christ. And because the Son is the eternal delight of the Father, not only is his wrath turned away from me, but his favor is turned toward me. And now I stand before a holy God as righteous as Christ is. Now, am I righteous? Many of you have known me a long time. The answer is, of course, no, I am not. I'm trying to be, I don't want to sin. I'm, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. Jesus make me, or God make me in the likeness of Christ. But I am not righteous. I am to this day a sinner. But through, from God's perspective, because of Christ's propitiation, I have his favor and not his anger. And what's more glorious than that? God, and here, now, here's, that's amazing. Here's what's really amazing about it. Who makes the payment to satisfy the wrath of God? God does. He is the offended person. We are the offender. Who makes the payment? God makes the payment to satisfy his own wrath. Who does that? Is China tomorrow going to pull out a checkbook Say, U.S., you you guys owe us like trillions of dollars. We're going to write a check to cover that. And we're good. In fact, we don't hate you anymore. We love you. Is that going to happen? Are any of the victims of Bernie Madoff going to say, you know what? I think I'm gonna get my checkbook out and I'm gonna write a check to cover what he did to me and on top of that I'm gonna like him not gonna happen it's not gonna happen who does this what offended person it's one thing to forgive something we're not talking about that here we're talking about a God Who makes the payment, he makes the offering to satisfy the wrath that he rightly has against our sin, which we could never pay. He satisfies his own wrath. How? Christ. Jesus was that wrath-turning, anger-turning, favor-turning offering, and it was his cross. And friends, that's why, you know, in, in Christianity, it always comes back to the cross. It always comes back to the Jesus. It always comes, it's all about him over and over and over again. And here's just another aspect of salvation where we see how important it is, for who Christ is and what he did, leaving us to marvel again at the glory of Christ and the glory of God and the wonder of his love and mercy and his grace towards sinners like us. Are you with me? Amen. Now, let's bring this around and say, okay, well, what difference does that make on the basic issue that John is addressing here, namely, the Christian's perspective towards sin? We don't deny it. We don't celebrate it. But if God can forgive it, am I kind of okay doing it? Because I sort of know where this thing's going. I mean, I've got eternal life in my back pocket. Everything's good, right? So we can kind of have a good time. What are you guys doing after the service? I can think of a few fun things we could go do, and we'll have the forgiveness service in the in in the next day, and we're all good. The visitors are going, this is my kind of church. I love this place. (laughs) Glad we finally came here. What is John saying? This is what he's saying. The awful price, propitiatory price that was paid to turn God's wrath into favor motivates the Christian Not to sin. Not to sin. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It was the false teachers. They twisted and turned it and said, ah, you're good. Let's go. We have a license to sin. I don't think so. Imagine a son. Imagine with me a son who goes to college. And all of his expenses are paid. But how are all those expenses paid? His single mom worked two jobs from the day he was five years old until he went to college. All day, much of the night, in in horrible kind of jobs, making not much money. Week after week, year after year, she's doing it all the time, telling her, son, it's because I believe in you, I want to give you opportunity, I want you to go to college she saves up enough with all that effort to send him to college now imagine this son going to college and thinking to himself this is awesome all my expenses are paid you know what i'm going to do i don't have to worry about a grade point average it's all covered i don't have to maintain a scholarship it's all covered i'm gonna party i'm gonna sleep in i'm skipping class I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I got all the money I need to pay that tuition. I'm free as a bird. What kind of son would do that? No son that realized the sacrifice that was paid for him to go to college would do that. And similarly, no Christian who understands the price that Christ paid for our salvation is going to think inside, I really want to sin today. You see it? It just, it, it's, it's incongruent. It, it can't happen. It would show that we didn't actually, like the son would show he didn't actually love the, his mother if he would do something like that to her. It shows that we actually don't know our Heavenly Father or love him if we presume upon him in this way the price god paid to atone for our sins and to propitiate his own wrath against us motivates the christian not to sin and of course we still do because we have those other desires within us romans 7 but in our hearts our big desire we we don't want to i how many of us wish this week we couldn't we wouldn't sin at all we probably all would go yeah and then tuesday comes and we want to sin don't we and that is, the great, that is the great contradiction of, of the Christian who is, not, is saved but is not yet there. But we don't want to sin. Not when we understand the cross. Secondly, when we do sin, we rejoice that we have an advocate. And here now brings it back to the point of what John was saying that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in an intercessory role for us. Christians sin, we sin, we're gonna sin, you're gonna sin this week, we all do. We will until the day that we die and get rid of this sinful body. But we don't want to. And he's already said in verse nine that confession brings cleansing from daily sins that we commit. And here then is how Jesus' righteousness Propitiation and this heavenly advocacy works for us. Again, verses 1 and 2 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That verse explains 1 conf- 9. Let me do this in slow motion, okay? Here's slow motion how God cleanses us as Christians. Wednesday I sin and it could be a thought it could be a word it could be any number of things but I sin and what happens then hopefully I feel conviction over that don't I inside my conscience or the Holy Spirit or I have a brother or sister or my wife who says you know that oh you know what you were right that was that was bad I am so sorry and I go, to my, I go to God, 1-9, and I say, God, I confess this sin to you. I wish that I had not done it. I ask you to forgive me and restore to me a right desire to live in a way that pleases you. That prayer goes up like a balloon. Okay? And it lands in the courtroom of God, in the throne room of God. And there he is, God the Father, in all his glory, on the throne. At his right hand is Jesus. God the Father hears the prayer. I have sinned again. Of course, does he know that we've sinned? Of course he knows that we've sinned. But here now is where the advocacy of Jesus kicks in. And I don't know if it's exactly like this, but I I think it's something like this. Father, Jesus says, did you hear the prayer? He's confessed it. He confessed it. Your child has confessed his sin. You promised that you would forgive the confessed, the confessed sin. Do you remember when you promised that? Back in, back in Jeremiah? Remember that? And you know what, Father? I want to tell you. Do you remember? This is why you sent me to earth. I came to... Remember why you gave me the name Jesus in Matthew 1? What the angel said? For he will save his people from their sins. This is why you sent me. And Father, you know I lived a righteous life. I never once violated your will. I lived it perfectly. And Father, I know that you know what happened on that cross as the sky drew black from 12 o'clock to 3 as I hung on that cross. And you placed upon me the guilt, the sins of the world. And I want you to know, Father, and I know you know this, but what he did... Was one of the things that I bore on the cross I bore it there and I, I ask you don't look at him for what he has done I want you to look at him through me father turn your anger into favor for my sake don't treat him as his sins deserve because you treated me on the cross as his sins deserved. Restore him. Come alongside him. Build him up. Help him not to do that again. Help him know how much you love him. You want to talk about having the right person on the inside? In fact, the message translates advocate, priest, friend. Friend. He is our priest friend. And there he is, day and night, ever living to give intercession for his people. And the Father and the Son delighting in the work of redemption and what Christ has done and the application of it in an ongoing sanctification and cleansing of his people, ongoingly turning away the wrath of God against our sin into favor and into eternal favor. Imagine this. God basically promises in salvation, I will never hold those sins against you. Though they are scarlet, they now are white as snow and it will ever be that way it is eternal life is eternal favor god the father eternal favor i will never be angry with your sins again how could this happen because of what christ has done to turn that wrath into favor and into eternal love and it is it's a big theological hairy word but that word says so much and if we can Get that and love it and treasure it and understand how God and Jesus are working out our salvation. It, again, it motivates us to live righteously and to not sin and to enjoy the favor of God when we confess our sins. All these things just going on and there's Jesus, our priest friend at the right hand of God the Father. Christian, interceding for you Think of it, personalize this, interceding for you. I'd like to think it's by name Steve DeWitt. God the Father, Steve DeWitt, right there. To think that that's going on in heaven, it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. So, all glory to Christ, our advocate. All glory to Him, our righteousness. All glory to Him our propitiation accomplished on the cross for our sins. And I told you, if you get this, you ought to walk out of here dancing. And I want to see some of you dancing, all right? Because I I hope that we get it. And I hope that we leave here wanting not to sin and to live to the glory of the one who died for us and made all of this possible. All glory to him. Amen, God's people? Amen. 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 Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a saving God and a forgiving God. We thank you for Jesus who has accomplished this. And Lord, I just pray that we would be a congregation that Uh, that doesn't just lightly touch the theological truths but that we would go deep and that we would understand the inner workings as you've revealed them and Lord I pray that the vision of Jesus at your right hand would be such an encouragement to us because we struggle with sin and habits that are destructive and we think we're never going to get past them and who is here to help us and And we may feel alone in this, but it is wonderful to know that Christ is there. And we pray, Lord, that you would listen to your Son as he intercedes for us and on our behalf, and that this would produce, Lord, a a delight in your people, and in your people a delight in you that is to your glory. So help us not to sin and to relish to relish Christ's advocacy for us. We love him. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.